Hey everyone, I'm Mallory Rubin and I am thrilled to tell you that House of R has a new podcast feed. Joanna Robinson and I will now be with you twice a week with more of the deep dives you've come to know and love on the Ringerverse. In addition to exploring all of your favorite nerd culture new releases, we'll have nostalgic revisitations, hype meters, Hall of Fame inductions, tropes courses, drafts, and more. All bad babies are welcome as we dive into Star Wars, Marvel, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, and beyond. Follow the new House of Our feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on Cars.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he no longer qualifies as passive. It's Andy Greenwald! What, 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 what happened to me to change my qualification? I, th- I, mean, I would love to know your thoughts on infection cooking. Mm-hmm. Induction cooking. I have strong thoughts. Invection cooking? Induction burners. Induction burners, electric mm-hmm. burners versus gas burners, electric cars versus gas cars. Don't know what I'm talking about. It's Monday. Mm-hmm. I'm coming fresh off of like a nearly two-hour recording, Andy, so I feel loose. Your energy is good. <laughs> What's going on with you, man? Great to see you. So, Today we're doing Fargo and the Curse, and I also have some stuff to talk to you about about popular culture. I just want to say, like, for people, you know, I, I assume that people mostly tune in to this podcast at this point for our hard-hitting takes on one to three television shows per quarter. <laughs> but maybe there are a couple of people who are interested in the particulars of our lives, yeah. and I just felt like yesterday was a banner day for us. For one of us, yeah. <laughs> well... It wasn't, it wasn't my best performance, I think. You are great. So, obviously, Chris and I being good friends of slightly masochistic mind and body, wanted to watch our beloved Philadelphia Eagles play, the San Francisco 49ers. And let me just say that, um, you know, we're we're big enough to admit that um, the 49ers won their Super Bowl. So congratulations <laughs> on your regular season trophy. Yeah. That's cool. Um, didn't go great, but the day itself went very well. And the thing that happened yesterday that I was so excited about was we had plans to watch this game together. Yeah. And uh, as people know, I like to check in with my buddy early. Very early, yeah. But I, I waited. I can count on several links and <laughs> thoughts I bet my upon best. My, my, my awakening, yes. Um, but so I always Sunday morning, I'm like, how are we feeling about the game? And uh, Chris was like, you, you sure you're, you're up for this? And I was like, thank you for checking, yes. And then I uh, went out for a, uh, quick, I didn't have much time, uh, three-mile run around the neighborhood, came back, was sort of uh, drinking a lot of water and like opening the windows of the house uh, in anticipation of your arrival in three and a half hours mm-hmm. when I heard some footsteps. Some little, 
Like I was like, oh, is there an, an animal? Is, a, is that a coyote? Just a little Irish leprechaun prancing up the stairs. <laughs> then I heard a... Hello? And I was like, does does Amazon make its workers work on Sunday? Yeah. Yes, they do. Yeah. But uh, it was my guy holding a, a, a bundle. I, th- I think I spied some Brussels sprouts in there. I had come from the farmer's market at Atwater Village, yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you were surprised at what was greeting you. Uh, this is the second time this has happened to me this year where I just got a time completely wrong. <laughs> One was particularly egregious where I I believe I've talked about this on the podcast. If I haven't, it's sort of an admission that... Then you're lucky. <laughs> uh, over the summer, I had a very early tea time in Philadelphia with, with, with some of the, the homies from Bad Brother. Mm-hmm. And um, we were going to play golf. And I woke up, uh, got showered, mm-hmm. got uh, fully applied a layer of suntan lotion. It's responsible. And then looked at my phone and realized it was three in the morning. <laughs> That's very special. Yeah. That's uh, So this time was not as bad, but I did, it was weird. As I was driving to your house, I was just like, it just doesn't feel like this is about to happen. Like I, yeah. I haven't gotten any texts from anyone being like, it's rainy at the link. Yeah. Here we go. It was kind of like everybody was waiting, and except for me, and I, I just thought we had a 10 a.m. kickoff. Uh, it was 125. Yes. Uh, here on the West Coast. But what thrilled me was, can I tell our listeners? One, this felt so pure. This felt like being in your 20s, living yeah, in a different like city. Yeah, like I'm just dropping by. You tried to get me to stay. It felt like, <laughs> it felt like a, a 90s sitcom where like, you know, Kramer just shows up and just walks in. Like all the action happens when people show up at each other's apartments. So I was thrilled to see you. Two, I really appreciated the opportunity to show you that I'm not just about this life, you know, on the mic and on the text. Uh-huh. That the two times you came over, because God bless you, you did come back yes. in three hours after I had um, driven children all over the Southland. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- was that the first time you came over, I'd, I had just gone running. Uh-huh. The second time you came over, I was just like elbow deep in a specialty chicken. It was marinade. incredible. It was. I it was w- cooking. It was. It was like watching Chicken Napoleon at Austerlitz to see you. Wait, he wins Austerlitz. Oh, thank God! <laughs> I was like, wait a second. So, so, oh, I see. So, I'm the chicken that you are the Napoleon of chicken. Maybe one day you'll have your Waterloo. Perhaps it will be with a wet chicken. But it was just amazing to watch you put together the aromatics. Yeah. Balance out the flavors. I got it was to, a pungent smell, frankly, of that marinade. But you know, but but the, but the cooking time on the grill really mellows it out. Mm-hmm. So really, I was just thrilled. I got to, I got I got double dip with my pal, and you know, I thought that we held it together during what was essentially an excruciating loss. Uh, yeah. I mean, these things happen. That's yeah. that's just kind of my attitude. Um, it's it's about the the long tail of history. And I'm I'm really happy. Is that what Napoleon thought too? <laughs> yeah, that's Did right. that work out for him? <laughs> that's right. I'd love to see Dre Greenlaw exiled to Elba. <laughs> Ridley Scott's Dom DeSandro coming um, out. Andy, today I wanted mm-hmm. to talk to you a little bit about Fargo and the Curse, obviously. And essentially, we were going to have a conversation about America in so much as we were talking about those wow. shows. Okay. But first, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, some shows that are coming up next year. And uh, there were some trailers that dropped over the weekend, mm-hmm. specifically for two Amazon shows, The Return of the Boys, mm-hmm. and then uh, Christopher Nolan's brother, Jonathan, who did Westworld, he is adapting uh, a very popular video game called Fallout. Um, and that's going to be starring Walt Goggins. The trailer for that showed up, and it is uh, very boys-adjacent, I would describe, mm-hmm. in its uh, tone. It, uh, is that a Point Grey show, or is that... It, it, it's also... It's worth saying, um, no, it's not. Um, 
it's I think the, the connection is just Amazon Studios. Okay, Point Grey is the Seth Rogen, um, Evan Goldberg studio. I will or, say that when you are sending some, like, let's get it together, plan some stuff for the podcast text, sometimes your punctuation is loose. Mm-hmm. So you suggested that I check out the trailer for Fallout Boys. <laughs> and I was like, this is right up my alley. I can't believe there's a documentary. Uh, I I Googled it. Yes. I Googled Fallout Boys. And what did you I get? I Googled Fallout Boys Amazon. And I got a hell of a deal on uh, Infinity on High. Shelter. Or that, yeah. Um, so I uh, wanted you to look at Fallout. I wanted you to look at uh, the Boys trailer. And I wanted you to watch the House of the Dragon Season 2 trailer that came out, on, I believe, on Friday or Saturday. Buddy, I watched them all. And the reason I wanted to do this is because, you know, I go through... Uh, I go through the the weekend news usually, and there's a lot of like interesting mm-hmm. box office writing that's still being done. A lot of it happens in in newsletters like mm-hmm. Ankler and, and Puck, and I find it per- perhaps perverse that I find it satisfying, but I find it deeply satisfying to look at a film and say like, "This was the budget. This is what we can assume was the promotional expenditure yes. on the film. This is how much it made. This is how much of a profit it made." I don't necessarily use that for any kind of, you know, how did I feel about the movie? But it is interesting when you're talking about what kind of decisions get made in Hollywood for what kind of films get made. It's it's like, you know, like something very dependable like horror Mm -hmm. tends to have a very modest budget. Mm -hmm. And then the ceiling is very high. The floor is very high for horror. As we've seen with Talk to Me and Black Phone this year, there was just really some real success stories at the box office usually. and, And they can still launch original properties in horror. It's not all franchise and Mm -hmm. sequels and stuff like that. So why am I bringing this up? Because these shows, House of the Dragon, uh, Fallout, and and The Boys, are a genre of television that is still relatively new, which is, I would define as intentional blockbuster television, Mm -hmm. right? So like the idea that these streamers or, uh, you know, legacy networks that have become streaming networks are investing heavily in shows that they hope to have the equivalent of a blockbuster film on their hands in a television show format. And one thing I'm just trying to wrap my head around as we see these eye-popping budgets for a lot of these shows, um, obviously like $250 million was spent just even acquiring Lord of the Rings, I believe, Mm -hmm. for Amazon. Um, There's more Lord of the Rings development being done by Warner Brothers Discovery, and I think they're going to be films, but I'm not exactly sure. What the hell do you consider a hit? What's yeah. a blockbuster in television? And and can you have the kind of return on investment that you would be looking for? Because to me, you see so much cost-cutting happening in the television business right now that I wonder whether or not, while we thought we were on the, the verge of this era of blockbuster TV and IP cashing in and putting these traditionally movies, we're going to put them on television and, and have like almost like a new monoculture mm-hmm. out of that stuff. I wonder whether or not we're actually in the twilight of that era. I think that's the right question to ask. And I think to to get to the heart of this very well-observed point, by the way, you are, Thanks. you're sharp today. Thanks. Um, is is going to be tricky for us uh, who are more, you know, like I think the 49ers season turned when Steve Wilkes, the defensive coordinator, came down from the booth to the field. Oh, I didn't know he did that. We're on the field. And I think that some people who are in the booth might have a different viewpoint of how all this is shaking out. But I think a lot of this goes back to a question we've been asking a lot ourselves, even from our our you know relatively um, lower perspective on it all, which is like what is what is the point of these expenditures and of this brand building and of this investment? You are absolutely right to say that these are outrageously expensive shows to make and even expensive properties to acquire. 
Um, two of the the three that you're mentioning are Amazon, mm-hmm. and Amazon is under a different metric in terms of what's valuable to them, and they continue to acquire things. They're making a God of War, which is another very successful yeah. uh, video game. They're making that as a TV series. They have Wheel of Time. They have Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and they're spending untold amounts of money on them. Um, there always has been a way to make quite a bit of money in television, but I think the old way of doing it, whether it was, you know, the the make 200 episodes, sell it into syndication, into perpetuity model, or even the more recent version where a modest show like The Office in the UK could launch a billion-dollar global franchise mm-hmm. where they just outsource the format to various countries. Those are ways to make money in television. I think these shows come from a different mandate, which was one, the one you alluded to, which is like, let's compete with blockbuster entertainment. It's all one pipe for entertainment now, and so we need to just dominate where we can. But also for these companies to try to become global networks, global powerhouses with one show that can rule them all, and them all being all the subscribers everywhere, including in the two Indias. But so to get to this point, maybe that still works for an... Maybe it still works for an Amazon, but it's sort of hard to see it, especially when we have TV persistently being the, not even long tail, but the tail of movies. And just last week, we were talking about Bob Iger being like, do we have to spend this much money to get this result? Yes. Maybe we don't. Yeah, Maybe we should like, be spending. The, the, the billion dollar box office that we were living in, those, mm-hmm. those routinely making a billion dollars with Marvel movies was actually the outlier. And maybe we should recalibrate what we expect these things mm-hmm. to do and by by that same token, recalibrate what they cost. Now, there's a bunch of different reasons why those movies cost what they do. Some some of those reasons have to do with the amount of VFX and the speed with which those VFX have to be executed, mm-hmm. like the t- turnaround that they have. Uh, some of them is the cast. Some of them is is just the sheer size of the productions. But when it comes to television, there's something kind of democratic or flattening about watching something on your TV where succession can feel as big as Lord of the Rings. Yep. And sometimes to me feels bigger um, mm-hmm. and more real and more, I don't know, like you can reach out and touch it. And I was thinking about what the like sort of ideal execution of blockbuster television would be. And I think it was The Last of Us. Not only in that it was quite objectively a hit, but that I'm sure they spent quite a bit of money on... Um, on some special effects for the for the creatures that are in the show, but it's essentially a two-hander road movie mm-hmm. shot in pretty sparse, wide open spaces. Like you didn't have to rent out, you know, you don't have to rent, you know, get three blocks of Manhattan shut down to shoot Last of Us, or mm-hmm. maybe they did, but I, I, it just seems more and more. Do you think Casey Voice is listening to this now, being like, they didn't have to? <laughs> <laughs> no, they couldn't get it because the Gilded Age had those blocks of Manhattan. That's right. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I was even trying to imagine what. Say, um, I suppose like the first season of The Mandalorian felt like a hit, you know, yeah. as that as that emerged and that became something. But so much of what we do with TV and we're kind of like, we go about it in this reverse way where we're like, if it's good, it's important. Yes. And then we almost sort of like fan cast a, a conversation around a show I- to make it seem like it's important. But it's actually like, we do that because we don't really have concrete numbers to base our assumptions on sometimes. Right. Well, so there's two there's two questions there. The the, the thing about like what is a hit, um, that's a beyond our pay grade, yeah. honestly. Um, Amazon has decided that its business is to dominate big franchises and do them that are with things that are recognizable around the world and fill that gap and provide that programming and spend whatever it costs to get it. 
And maybe it works for them because they can afford to lose a lot of money because to your point about like what value is, it's not necessarily profit. It's not necessarily money the way we often think of success or value or profit meaning. It might mean that for 10 years from now, a young generation of you know Gen Z and beyond gamers are like, I watch TV on Amazon Prime Video because they had the shows that I liked when I was growing up. That could, And they can make a long-term play like that. Um, but I think the question underneath your question that I'm curious about is, is this sustainable? And it's certainly not sustainable in a way that not everyone can play this game. And um, HBO's reasons for making House of the Dragon and its dependence on the success of House of the Dragon is quite different than Amazon's okay, mm-hmm. bet on Jonathan Nolan and his wife, Lisa Joy, and Fallout, honestly. I, and that's not even a value judgment on the shows because I haven't seen the second season of one and I'm completely unfamiliar with yeah. the property of the other. But you kind of wonder if one of these companies will use the opportunity of the the labor pause that we've just gone through to adopt a kind of Billy Bean Moneyball strategy, which is you know you cannot compete with the Yankees. You cannot outspend them. Right. You cannot compete with them that way. So what can we do differently? And bringing it all the way back to what you said about succession, like the the enduring popularity and emotional connection of a show like Grey's Anatomy, is that a more profound connection than the connection some people have with Game of Thrones? Mm-hmm. Are there more people in that bucket or fewer people? What are those people's buying habits and loyalty habits for the, you know, vis-a-vis the long-term plans of the companies making them? Like, we don't know that stuff. We don't have access to that marketing data. But it's interesting to me because at the end of the day, it's still television and people still have certain expectations about the entertainment from it. And I think that's not necessarily to go to a different planet in the Star Wars galaxy every week. I think people are psyched that they can do it, but that's not traditionally the way you've engaged with it. People, people love cop shows. They love murder mystery. Yeah. You know, hospital shows. And is this, is the battle still being fought on the terrain of hype and social media and buzz? Like, is that still what has value? And I, and I understand why that did have value when there's 600 shows being produced and brands attempting to establish beachheads all over the world and, um, and establish streaming services. Sure, that's where you maybe have to engage. But as we've seen in a lot of other areas of, of financial life in 2023, like the, the goalposts have changed slightly. Sure. You know, just to speak specifically about the shows that had this trailers, I did note with interest. So you've got the fourth season of The Boys the had the, the trailer for that. And then the Fallout trailer, which comes from Nolan and Lisa Joy, who did Westworld and did uh, a short-lived, I guess, show on Amazon called The Peripheral, which I never watched, but got the impression was kind of in the Westworld vein tonally. Mm -hmm. The trailer for Fallout trumpets that it's coming from the same studio that brought you the boys, and the tone of Fallout is very boys. It's incredibly bloody. It's winking and knowing. It seems like it's got a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like the violence is really gonzo. And I note that with interest in some of the same ways that all of Star Wars got taken over by the Filoni tone. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether Amazon has decided that boys strikes the right chord for them in terms of some of their IP adaptations. Obviously, I don't think we're going to have like boys style storytelling in, in Middle Earth. 
but it was it was notable to me having not played Fallout, so I don't know if it's kind of has that sensibility in the first place that that was the way that they presented this show. Well, I think that like having a kind of a winking pulp sensibility extends even to our beloved Reacher, which is coming back yeah. as a big hit for them. Like if you are a company that at least at one point in time was known for selling paperback books, like sure, lean into that and make your genre storytelling at least have a pulse or a sense of humor. I'm you know I'm definitely for that. I would also say that. Historically, when I've wanted humor, I have not turned to the Nolan brothers. (laughs) You know, like that is just not. Yeah. They're good at many things, but um, leaving them in stitches is not among them. Um, My, 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 the slight amount of familiarity I have with the Fallout franchise is, is that that is a little bit of that tone that it has. There's like a, you know, there's an extravagant, like rich population. It's about people. It's very silo in the beginning of the trailer. Like there's some people who've been kept out of the surface world. And then one person decides to go out, right? And to see what survived from a nuclear apocalypse. And it's really super surreal and weird. Yeah. That seems like the thing that recommends it and separates it from other game franchises and makes it seem like more interesting as an adaptation for me because when you hear Nolan in video game again, I'm like, okay, this is going to be self-serious. If it's not, it's not. And I kind of wondered from this trailer which is very appealing. And it has really good, it has Walton Goggins in it. Ella Purnell, who's the star of uh, short-lived star series, Sweet Bitter. Mm-hmm. Kyle MacLachlan, the great, yeah. is in it. Um, the first fifth of the trailer, first 20% of the trailer is pretty serious. And I'm like, they just did Silo again and it's trumpeting the Nolans. And then it switches with a needle drop and it seems like a totally different show. Yeah. In my optimistic version of this, the Nolans wanted Nolan and I shouldn't say the Nolans Christopher is not involved Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy maybe they just wanted the second part of that trailer the the last 80% yeah and were told to do the other part to say that we have done something different here and I I feel good about that it's intriguing it's visually interesting I don't know if it's appealing when you have a dog holding a human hand in its mouth it's smart though because like after the end of Westworld which I think was really probably shedding viewers by a certain point and peripheral didn't really catch on I think it there's something to be said for switching things up a little bit. And even though they're still working in this sort of post-apocalyptic dystopian vein, I think it's cool that they're trying something else out. I would say, though, I don't know if you were going to pivot to the other shows, I think they're an interesting trio to talk about even just speculatively Mm -hmm. off the trailers to say that, and does this reaffirm my priors? Yes. So I'm going to confess that at the beginning. But the boys trailer was pretty exciting. I like that show already. I'm in. I like the show when it's essentially about nothing other than itself. But it seems like it has stumbled into being about something, uh, capital letters. And I'm cool with that. Like, I, 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 th- I think that um, Eric Kripke and his team have done a really surprisingly subtle job. And first of all, using the word subtle in relation to the boys is in and of itself yeah. an achievement. But of making a show that is that references our world, that nods to our world, that takes cues from our world. It seems to be getting closer to our world as we head into a series debuting in um, 2024. Not uh-huh. debut, a season debuting in 2024. But it it felt like it had a different a different amount of wind in its sails for that reason, um, which is not something that I would say about House of the Dragon. Now, I, look, I I would would I would not at all be surprised if the second season of House of the Dragon. Not that it cares at all what I think about it, but it, but it just on its own accord addressed some of the criticisms that that I and others had about its time jumping and all these things because now it seems to have reached the point of the it's story the it yeah. wants to tell. That said, 
anything that that the the boys feels contemporary all of a sudden in a not all of a sudden it always has to a certain degree but if you're showing me creeping rise of fascism through that kind of like cartoony superhero and superheroic violence versus hey guess what we nuked LA again yeah versus the dragons are the real weapons of war <laughs> and the battlefield is the womb i'm like which, you, which you, of these you, grabs me you weren't enthused <laughs> no but i'm just like okay here we go there's a feeling Sorry to go on this, but the larger thing that you brought this up, the larger context in which what you brought up, the way you brought up this conversation was like this sort of storytelling, like incredibly expensive genre storytelling on television around the world, that one of the more depressing things about it, and this is true for Star Wars, it's true for Marvel, it's true for Name Your Show that you just did from Amazon, is that they seem to exist in like a sealed um, bubble of their own reason for being. sure we can we can show you anything now thanks to the volume and the volume of the budgets on amazon and so what we're going to show you is we destroyed the world again there are zombies guess what they're elves guess what two tribes are at war right. it has been always been ever thus come on yeah come on like give me something to just grab onto or sink my teeth into no vampires um, and that is and for you that's the boys it's not the boy. I mean, for me, it's... Um, the thing to sink your teeth into, I mean. Yeah, well, it's just like, okay, this feels like it has some... There's a heartbeat here. Mm-hmm. There's a heartbeat here of something about humanity that is that is engaged with the larger human project as opposed to either backwards looking or be like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if it all ended and we did this instead? <laughs> Which, believe me, I, my desire for that may increase over sure. the next yeah. 11 months. But <laughs> talk to you in late November for real. Yeah. But uh, the thing I wanted to ask you about with House of the Dragon. Yeah. And I feel a little bit like it stays up late writing Yelp reviews. But hear, hear me out. <laughs> House of the Dragon trailer dropped. Also over the weekend, Furiosa's trailer dropped. I want to talk about that. And uh, I would say the majority of the feedback or the response I saw for Furiosa was this looks like shit. Yeah, uh, that the the special effects did not seem finished, mm-hmm. and that they seemed kind of like poorly rendered. Right. And I candidly like I think one of the issues that I have with House of the Dragon, I actually don't mind the storytelling mm-hmm. stuff so much. It's it is literally that it's like if Jaws was called Ocean Full of Sharks, and you just saw sharks all the time. Mm-hmm. Like for me, part of the fun of Game of Thrones was they hid the dragon yes. a little bit. Like the dragon was a mystery. And they also didn't have to address or worry about what does it look like when someone rides a fantastical beast through the sky. And now and that someone is an eight-year-old we've never seen before. Now they actually have to do that for a third of the show. I mean, yeah. like a lot of what I think comes forward now is the Dance of Dragons. You've been talking right? to Mallory again? No, but I I did do some Wikipedia reading and I was oh. like, oh, these dragons play a, a fundamental part in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's their house. It's in the title. I was... Do you get do you get annoyed or does it bother you at all when you're watching stuff and you're like this this seems fake to me not yes. like, not like the idea of like no, a no, dragon no. but this dragon doesn't seem scary or big or real Did and you, it looks like this person is riding in front of a green screen Have you seen this movie that's that's coming out this month called Godzilla minus 1 Did you see the trailer for Godzilla X Kong I saw neither Uh the the Godzilla X-Con movie, which stars Rebecca Hall and yeah. Brian Tyree Henry, yep. looks like a cartoon. Yeah. 
Like right. that, that is what but, those those beasts look like. But Godzilla under. minus one is a movie without Godzilla. Is it? It's like Garfield minus Garfield. Okay. But it seems it's getting these good reviews because yeah. I think it's about the effect of the uh, human the human the human story. condition. <laughs> yeah, the heart <laughs> of it. Godzilla. Well, I'm really selling it. I um, yeah. I, I well, there's two things. Like the the Furiosa thing was interesting because the trailer, in my opinion, rips. Yeah. And. I love those actors and I love the George Miller 78 years young. It's just like, let's, let's fucking go. Yeah. And he knows how to make a movie that feels tactile and like a movie. I wrote, I think I texted you about this. I was texting with another buddy about that trailer, about how good it looked. And on both text threads, I started to type CG's a little dodgy though. Right. Yeah. Right. And then I stopped because I, first of all, just didn't want to harsh the mellow. And B, I think it is okay to assume that, especially for a guy who's, is a perfectionist that if there are computer shots, and I think one of the things about Fury Road is that there were relatively few, right? I think that there was, or there's like goosing around the margins. It was a practical shot that right. then they would add elements to, right? Yeah. So I, it would not surprise me if they were not ready yet. And then that begs the question of well, then why do the trailer? But that's that's not a George Miller decision. That's a is it Warner Brothers, I guess, decision. Sure. Um, that stuff can be in a movie. It seems like they have enough runway to fix it. This isn't like a multiverse of madness situation. Hopefully, yeah. With Dragon, I I just agree with you. Like it's it's too much riding on something that is so fundamentally out of the control of the creative team. Which does not. I want to be careful when I say this. Like the CG artists and people who work on this stuff are artists and they are creative as well. But if there's one thing we've learned about the last year is that the demands placed on them and the expectations placed on them and the calendar they are. Uh, I don't even know to. what like good dragon work would look yes, like. Yes, right. Well, I think fundamentally, I think you nailed it, which is just like that shot that has existed since never-ending story of someone sitting on a Muppet yeah. being like with a wind machine Whoa, being like, oh, easy yeah. there, boy. <laughs> and then it cuts to like, you know, a, a computer dragon slithering through space sky. Like that objectively has improved over time, yes. but it's still ludicrous. It's just, it's kind of ludicrous. So, that slow, we are going to be broken records always pointing to that like, aha, by the time they got to that, uh, was it like the wagon train and the end of Thrones, like, ah, finally the dragon paid off. Yeah. But more Jaws. It's just that that's a smarter way of considering it. And it's cheaper. And again, maybe building a show around the single most expensive eye-catching thing made sense in a different world, a different economy, when it was an ar- a different sort of arms race. And also to be quite frank, an arms race that I think HBO or when it was, you know, when it was Warner Media or whatever, an arms race they thought they could compete in. And uh, the Dance of Dragons has ended. <laughs> Why don't we take a quick break and when we come back, we'll talk about The Curse and Fargo. Did, did you see who's in House of the Dragons season two though? Uh, who? Freddie Fox. Oh, is he really? Our guy. He seems like he's been training for that role his whole life. Born to be a Targaryen. So that alone is going to get me at least to check it out again. All right, we'll come back in just a sec. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? 
To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, Andy, we're back. Now, usually we would split these shows into two separate discussions, but there is something about these two episodes that felt very much part of the same talk to me. So I'm interested I in thought this. we could try it this way. So we're talking about um, the third episode of Fargo, uh, which largely gets into a little... Well, it, you know, I would say it, it gets into, but it doesn't go too deep into the background of some of the other characters outside of the Juno Temple dot character. It shows us a little bit more of uh, Roy, John Hamm's sheriff character, mm-hmm. uh, and a little bit more of Ola. Mm-hmm. Is that his name? Ole? O- Ole? Uh, I, I, I don't know. The mysterious, near-supernatural killer in the wilderness that was briefly employed by Roy to kidnap Dot, but uh, has now kind of gone out into the into the wild and is now turned against Roy and mm-hmm. Gator. His, is that his son? Yep. Okay. So... You've got that story. And then in the curse, another incremental move. I think we're starting to get some of the little bit of um, Lynchian mystery that some of the early reviews of the curse alluded to in later episodes where, um, you know, the the Safdie character wakes up and and has these clues and is trying to figure out what he did the night before. And, By the way, that was me watching this episode, trying to figure out which episodes I well, missed. I, you, right, because we had just had this, like, how many episodes of The Curse are up, you know, the situation, but... You could tell me right now that this was episode eight of The Curse, because and this is not a pejorative. I feel like I've been watching the show for at least eight hours. Well, and also, there is a little bit of dialogue about how The Curse was created and how it was originally sort of conceived of as a half-hour comedy and became an hour-long drama somewhere in production. And it this did feel a little bit assembled, I guess. Yeah, there's also like that whole opening sequence where Benny Safdie wakes up and then is like deciding, has words scrawled on his hand and is like, which is the big tree? And then he digs in a couple trees and he finds the small tree. Like, yeah, this... This is a commitment. Yeah. Like, this is a commitment to making this a full 57-minute show to show all of this. It sure is. And I thought both episodes very explicitly uh, did sociopolitical commentary and what it means to be American Mm -hmm. stuff and what it means to be alive now, even though Fargo is a little bit of a period piece set in 2019 and the curse is is not. I think it's supposed to be contemporary. Mm -hmm. But uh, in both satire and statement, had some was singing from a similar hymn book. Mm. So Roy is married into a family in North Dakota with ties to or run the patriarch of that family. His his father in law essentially mm-hmm. is running a kind of Amon Bundy style group. We don't know much about it. He mentions 1776. He references needing Roy to get him more weapons through basically fed, federal acquisition mm-hmm. uh, or, or law enforcement acquisition. 
And uh, there's obviously some pretty explicit stuff about um, the role of law enforcement in society. The uh, There's gun rights stuff in this episode. It's It's a very explicitly political episode. And then The Curse, maybe less so, but doesn't get more than two or three minutes in, into an episode at any given moment. You're, you, every two or three minutes, there's some line mm-hmm. that almost feels like a pointed, barbed satire of contemporary culture, whether it's... And a lot of that is going through Emma Stone's wit character, I think. I think that Safdie and Fielder are kind of in the far outer reaches of strange comedic character study. Mm-hmm. But wit is the one who I think her intentions and her actions are being satirized the most. Would you agree with that statement? Yes, and I also think it's... it's. I, I think those are ideas and the topics and themes that they are putting onto uh, Emma Stone's strong shoulders. Mm-hmm. Like, as a performer, she can do that. Yes. The... There's a... There's a... Just, just a difference. And I think one of the successes of the show is that it seems clear to me that Nathan Fielder and Benny Safdie understand their strengths and flaws as instruments in this larger orchestra. Like, I think they know what people think of them and what they assume of them when they see them on the screen. And Emma Stone is a beloved actor. Yeah. And so it's a different effect when Asher, Nathan Fielder's character, stumbles down a rabbit hole of of self-abasement or or woke humiliation or whatever it may be. When Emma Stone does that walk to the neighbors where she leaves her mirrored home and walks back and like lovingly pretends to pet, she does pet the pit bull yeah. and asks about Barbara. And then the, her, the face she makes and the interaction she has with the guy. The guy whose Alienware uh, computer got stolen. <laughs> Alienware, yeah. And, and so again, is it is it cringe when she's like, oh, Alienware, I should look into that. That's cool, the stuff they come up with. Yeah. You know, and then her rage about the induction burner or whatever. Um, it just, it it plays differently when she's doing it. And for me, those are the most successful moments of the show because I don't feel the, I just don't feel the jumps from observational humor to to dark satire to drama. Mm-hmm. She's able to sort of... She is able to do it. And it's also all the more remarkable because the scene you're referring to, she shot it probably like 25 yards away from the back. We don't really right. ever see her... That's right face like this is a fucking movie star mm-hmm. that is getting practically no close-ups mm-hmm. practically no like star moments no vanity yeah there's no vanity to this performance and it is actually like a pretty like they, this character is being humiliated on a pretty routine basis i thought it was really interesting if you told me at the beginning of two, four a month ago that fargo and the curse are going to be on at the same time and one is going to feel very tightly controlled and the other is going to feel wildly chaotic, I would not have thought the curse was going to feel controlled mm-hmm. and that Fargo was going to swing so kind of broadly from... Uh, I mean, I think that those first two episodes and the cat-mouse element of it really turned me on. And then yeah. this third episode felt very much like part one of whatever the fourth episode is, which I haven't seen. I'm watching this show week mm-hmm. to week. And it doesn't just end on a cliffhanger. It ends on just like the sentence gets cut off in the middle. It sort of shrugs. Um, there is a, I would say, positively Lindelofian uh, foray to 500 years ago in Wales. There is a... I think it's Lindelovian. 
Okay. The F becomes a V, like with Elf. Oh, you're thinking of Damon Lindelof. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of somebody else. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't assume. I shouldn't assume. I'm thinking of Carl Lindelof, uh-huh. uh, who's really good at uh, doing flashbacks as well. He is talented. Um, uh, there's like these sort of almost dreamy, um, magical realism passages in this episode of Fargo where John Hamm is staring at the ceiling and blowing pot smoke up while his wife is propositioning him, but he's obsessed with Dot and is like almost physically like projecting himself into her space so to, to the point where she can feel him watching mm-hmm. from miles and miles away. Because he's really stoned. Yes, but it's, it's, it was kind of like a, a jumble sale of a Fargo episode. Yeah, I mean, I think this is always a tricky one. I'm kind of curious where you end up on this stuff because um, I, I am, my, my, my general platform is I'm broadly pro-creators getting freaky. Mm-hmm. Like, I want people to chase their muses wherever they may lead them, and I think that's a good thing. I feel like so much of this, not just the, the world, sure, but I mean, this industry in particular tries to choke that off. And without that instinct, we don't get any of the th- any of the shows that end up on our top ten list year after year, um, or even the shows that don't that miss it because we're like, wow, what the fuck? Like, but that was exciting. It feels different in a world where everything is post apocalyptic silo show. No offense to silo or fallout, which are fine. We should be celebrating this stuff. But there can, th- but I, but that said, we also have to be honest, or I have to be honest, and say that the first two episodes of this season of Fargo felt like a really strong balance between um, impulse and control of creativity in, in, and explosions of surprising idiosyncratic thinking and storytelling where necessary, but within a framework yeah. that really worked, not just worked for me in the sense of like thumbs up, thumbs down, rotten on, tomato. It was on a set of tracks. It was on tracks that were moving yep. and it was moving, moving, moving. And this episode felt more like a, a, a notebook dump of like, here are some other things that this that could happen in this world. I'm riffing on Nightmare Before Christmas, which is IP that we can play with now. And also, we're going to throw in a Chiron that you wouldn't expect to see, which is 500 years earlier, and Sin Eating, and we're going to play Prodigy Smack My Bitch Up. And like, there's a element of, it's not gluttony, but there's an element of too muchness in this and in the curse, I would say. It felt like a vision board. the, the, The Prodigy music needle drop is really telling because I think that's a great song, you know? Uh, it's cool to see that in a show. I didn't really draw much of a connection between the music and the action on the screen. I think it's fine that like Noah has a very um, playlisty, mixtapey kind of sensibility when it comes to the music being used. The I don't know where the music from the end of the episode came from, but it sounds a lot like The Shining music. Well, there's he is also using the Nightmare Before Christmas music. Oh, is that? What I don't it know. Was? I don't know if that needle drop was it because I don't have it in front of me. But that is happening in this season uh, so far. But that's a really good example of it's like it. It sounds very cool on paper, but I don't know what it did. It didn't. It didn't really like it. Like amplify the story at all, or amplify like a character beat for me. And so it was. It was like neat without any substance underneath of it. It also speaks to something that I think we're continually debating, which is um, fundamentally the difference between television and movies and the limitations, the often helpful limitations that movies can provide. So broadly speaking, everything in this episode, I'm not, in no way am I saying that this episode is a flight of fancy by 
Noah and his muse. I think that he correctly is, is doing what he has been doing over five seasons of the show, which is playing in the suggested larger sandbox of the Coen brothers and Fargo mm-hmm. and taking advantage of the fact that this is a TV show, not a movie, so you can push out in different directions and follow things maybe a little bit further than you would be able to in a film. One of those is this sort of where, where does evil come from, right? And and where does it come from in our society? And we said early on that the um, the Munch character has... Uh, he's got a little Anton Trigger in his hair mm-hmm. and his in the way he appears it's and the way that he Old talks. Testament diction, yeah. And in No Country for Old Men, that's enough. He's he is a a malignant mark on the countryside. And that the sort of almost biblical mystery of his presence and of the power of just showing up in a place conveys, right, in a short amount of time. There's no backstory, there's no bottle episode about it, and there couldn't be, and we're the better for it. So I don't think it's wrong to do what he's doing this episode um, and say, well, okay, we can we can cast a wider net. This show can be about these characters, but also about the society, mm-hmm. which is what you're saying about the curse. And so it'd say, well, okay, what is a sin eater? What did that mean? And show what it may have meant literally, someone like eating a dead per- a dead rich person's sin so the rich person could go to heaven. And then the role of, I don't know, contract killers in a gig economy. Like that's interesting. Yeah. He's playing with it. It's not it's not completely it's all within the bounds, I think, of the project. But after those first two episodes, this felt like a digression. But maybe this is us bumping up against the same things that the show itself bumps up against, which is this is what, eight, ten episodes of a TV show that we're watching week to week. And this is what TV shows do. They meander sometimes, and you don't see the whole vision of it. But it wasn't I, even the sure. meandering. I think that that took me out of it. I thought I thought that the the moment where Jennifer Jason Lee's character takes that last shot at Olmstead and is like, "Just so you know, you know, cops. Like, what's your function? Because mm-hmm. I'll tell you what your function is to me is like you're basically there to keep the rabble out. Yep. But you're on the outside, mm-hmm. and just remember that. Like, know know your place. And it's just like, I just don't think this would happen. And I don't mean in, in in the in reality. I just mean like, why would she do this? You know, well, like what and what and what part? What world is this character in that she would do that? And it's a cool moment for Jennifer Jason Lee as an actor to be able to do that dialogue and and kind of do a slam dunk. But I was just I was just sitting there and I was like, would somebody who was very careful do this? Well, this is though I think. It's actually I wasn't intending this, and I don't even know if I have the I don't even know if I have the rope to make this connection between what we were saying about the boys and why that works. But I think there's a difference between the focus and sometimes the limitations or even the time limitations of a story where you you simply show someone being kept in a place. Yeah, right. Versus right. you got eight to ten hours to fill, you got actors to service. We have to Think about not just the build of a plot across two hours, but of across this scene before the act out that is still necessary because FX is going to broadcast this with commercial breaks. Characters on TV often, they tell you. They yeah. tell you what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but it is such a fine line. And I, and I worry, like, I don't know how, we're in the middle of both of these shows, and I don't even know how much of our audience is watching both of these shows. But it's a fascinating subject that I don't, I'm not, I don't really have the, I don't have the horses yet. Roy Tillman has the horses, but I don't have the horses yet to articulate. Like, everything on screen in The Curse is a choice. Yeah. And there's so much on screen. Like, and sometimes it's just subtle and brutal and beautiful. Like, when Wit opens that 
fancy refrigerator in her mirror house and blocks Asher into the corner and he just waits there while she has the door open. (laughs) But also behind him, those shelves, everything on that is intentional, which is a sign of good art, right? But like, there's a couple boxes slightly askew showing us that it's chickpea pasta. Yeah. That's on purpose. Uh That's telling us who these people are and what they value. They have the chickpea pasta, but he's ordering the pre-made wheat pasta that the chicken's stolen out of. Okay. So everything is trying to communicate something about um, what society is right now and who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and what's the intention of it and is there any point? But we're being told a lot, Mm -hmm. a lot, a lot in both of these shows and having to sort it out. And I think people's mileage with that may vary. I think if you were just talking about these two episodes, again, like the first two episodes of Fargo, for me, just they sang. But episode three of Fargo and this episode four or eight or nine of The Curse, hard to tell. Yeah. I think it's four. Um, I felt overstuffed. Some of it agreed with me and some of it took me out and took me in. They did, did not feel smooth. Did you watch both of these episodes last night? Out no. of curiosity? Because that's just a dense evening of television. No, it, yeah. I'm glad. No, yeah. I watched Fargo. Um, no, I, I watched... Fargo a few days ago because I was excited to watch yeah. it and then again I am so confused as to where we are in the season of the curse <laughs> but like it feels churlish to to be micro criticizing the curse especially because it's trying so much all the time and that opening I was making fun of how ponderous it was and how confusing honestly it was because I unless I fell asleep in episode three we didn't see him I don't believe we did, no. End up with these high schoolers' cars or the keys buried by a, a big tree that's actually a small tree. Um, but the absolute strangeness of it and Benny Safdie's performance, I was super digging. Yeah. I like that. Um, I like that in the episode. There's just so much in all of these episodes. Yeah, I'm surprised by how dense it is. For Fargo, curious whether you felt like it's interesting to see Dot as the protagonist. I mean, I think in some ways, Lamar Morris is the protagonist. Like, he's the mm-hmm. more traditional kind of, like, audience He's avatar. the more Marge. He's, um, I forget Alison Tolman's character's name, uh, Solverson. Yeah. In the first season of yes. Fargo. Yes, the sort of, like, good man trying to figure this all out. Mm-hmm. Dot at the center of this, both as uh, someone who has, still has a lot of mystery to them, but also, you know, kind of fascinating to watch her try to buy a heckler uh, with with no federal waiting period on mm-hmm. it, and uh, in no way do I think that like the show is making a statement about gun rights. I think it's just depicting like this is an area of the world where like this is pretty common behavior, and that someone like Roy is out there, kind of you know that kind of evil is also out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it feels, and maybe that that's more American than we would like to admit. You know. It's very easy to make this observation from the relative comfort of our of Studio Six over here. Yeah, but it strikes me that one thing that we keep returning to in our conversations over TV this year is just less about the specifics of these shows and more about the larger nature of how we're just everything is split. The TV shows are either two hundred fifty million dollars to convince us to care about Moon Knight, or over here, a few people being like, "No, I want to engage." Yeah, right. Come on, guys, talk to me. Talk to me, and. I wish there was something more in the middle, which is not to say I want to know what Moon Knight thinks about Palestine. What it means is, like, I I wish that there was a, I just kind of wish, I wish there was a steady diet of culture that was engaging with things so we would have different perspectives on it and it didn't feel like, again, I don't think Noah Hawley or Benny Safdie or Nathan Fielder were, like, rolling up their sleeves being like, someone's got to do it. 
I don't think that they no. were like, I get these Atlantic updates on my phone every morning. I, I should probably <laughs> put some of this into my final draft document. Yeah. It's not that. These are shows that lead creatively 100%. But the 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 way we're talking about them does feel a little bit out of proportion because there's there aren't yeah, that many of the shows. Like did what happened to Meredith Grey this week? It's it's like what is this person saying about the country, right? Or what is this person saying about what it, it kind of means to be a human who commodifies every part of their life? It's also a nature of where we are with TV and that both of these shows are limited. Now Fargo is ongoing, but these characters are limited to the season. So we are talking about two one season shows that have to get through a lot of stuff, and thus the. When you're talking about like Dot buying guns, I was thinking about the scenes from one of the later episodes of Barry, which this isn't spoiling it for people who haven't watched Barry or the last season, although I think you really should. But there's a sequence when Barry basically goes into a Kmart to buy guns and it is done so quickly, but so much is conveyed to us by the way that it is shot and what's behind him when he does it and his demeanor and everyone else's demeanor. Barry could do that because it was just episode 408 of Barry, you know, whereas this is setting the table and serving the meal in a relatively short amount of time. Right. Yeah, that was, the, the. I think the gun buying thing was also like, at what point is Wayne, her husband, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I understand that the whole idea is that he's basically a pushover both for Dot and for his mother, but, you know, it's, it's there's, there's a lot of weird stuff happening with Dot over the course of 48 hours for her to be buying $5,000 worth of weapons. What is your personal, like, do you have a internal meter that like goes to tilt when the political relevance or the societal observation this hits is, a certain moment? This is the question that I was trying to get at because mm-hmm. I think that there's part of me that wants art to engage with society and engage with like our times. Mm-hmm. And then there is a weird allergy that I have to it. Sure. And you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about that because of the year in movies and some of which do very have incredible things to say about America and American history. And some of which are just like really well executed films. And my preference is for the latter. And that like, I think when I get down to it, like I read a lot about this country and I try to like understand what's going on. But when it comes to movies, I'm just as happy to see like a really well done B film, a really well done B movie. Um, And I don't know what that says about me. What about you? Well, I think that there's a, Again, it's it's a constant calibration and a negotiation. But I think in a perfect world, art comes is is like emerges from yeah. the moment. It doesn't stand in the moment bravely recording everything on its on its uh, pixel phone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I want it to emerge from it. But that said, context provides itself often. And so when you have the Mayor of Easttown is a very good example of that. There's okay. elements of Mayor of Easttown. Like, Mayor of Easttown's a mystery about who killed this girl. Yep. We learn a lot about that part of Pennsylvania and that part of the country by seeing that way that family interacts, seeing that painkillers and opioids have obviously affected the community in a big way. All that kind of stuff happens. It merges out of the story. I feel the same way about The Night Of. That's very much like Richard Price and Steve Zalian's vision of New York. Mm-hmm. This mystery that they are telling, but that all the sort of like social observations that come out of it are part of the story. Whereas sometimes I think shows can be like, we're stopping at this station to go back to the tracks idea. And we're going to spend time in this station to make sure everybody here gets the lesson. Yes. Well, once it becomes lesson giving or imparting or holding up a mirror, et cetera, I think you can feel it and everything grinds to a halt. I also think though that like, 
hindsight does so much of this work. History does so much of this work for it. Like right now we're, we're in the shit and I'm like, I kind of don't want to watch that right now. I don't want to watch the world ending. I don't want to watch more Marvel stuff with a few years distance or even a decade distance. You look back and you say like, this is very interesting about 2023 that it gave us the last of us that it gave us, um, this season of, of Fargo that it gave us past lives that it gave us, the Marvels, frankly, because it like the killer, like all of these do have something to say about what it, whether it's head in the sand, yeah. whether it's not paying any attention to it, or whether it's engaging with it so deeply it feels like it was always part of our lives. Like that, that work often comes later in terms of the significance. I think that what the shows you're giving are a good example of why you and I love crime fiction because it's such a successful way, it, detective fiction yeah. is a better way to call it throughout any era. It's such a great way to cast a light on a society because you have a character that is doing something as relatable and universal as solving a crime, but holding up a flashlight through all layers of society. Like I'm I'm doing my, you know this, but like I'm doing my, I guess it's every other year, every three years rereading of the James Crumley canon. Mm-hmm. This is a writer whom we adore. I feel like sometimes we say authors too quickly. James Crumley, C-R-U-M-L-E-Y. And when he wrote The Last Good Kiss in the 70s, like, I don't think he was like, I'm going to tell everybody what it's really like. Or that but, this is what happened to the hippie dream. Yes. He was just like, I'm writing about a character that is I know or that yeah. is me. And then it's breathtaking now to read a, of an American, not just the hippie dream died and this is how it died, but he's writing about a country that was easy for him to write about because he knew it, but it's gone. When the, the character is just like, I... I was heartsick in Montana, so I drove down to Elko, Nevada, and then I drove down to the Salt Lake City bus terminal to try to pick a fight with some Mormons. Yeah. Like, that's not my experience, (laughs) but that's telling me something about that time. Yeah, I don't know. So it it also feels a little bit odd to be, not odd, but it's challenging to be be doing this level of um, uh, criticism or granular, like, uh, tea leaf reading when we're three episodes I feel like this conversation in. probably would have been better saved for the end of these shows I was just the two shows did sing to me this weekend about this I, they sang this song I right? think it's time to they, they sing in your voice America yeah. I think that they are relevant for this moment in this conversation though because what we're doing week to week sometimes hopefully probably is talking about entertainment oh yeah and I thought you were gonna say we were talking about Drake Greenlaw but yeah I would say <laughs> Well, he got what he got what he deserved. Um, dirty player. I think uh, for me, I stumbled on it. Fargo uh, with Fargo this week. I continue to stumble on it with the curse, but I'm stumbling forward. Yes. I don't think maybe the third episode was the closest it's come, but there hasn't been an an episode of the curse that I've sat through start to finish in rapture. I come in and then it pushes me away, and that just might be the way those guys tell stories or how I receive them. Yeah. There's something about the way the curse is made that even when I'm watching it, I feel like I'm, my screen is down the hall. Like I can't see it all. Like I don't, am I seeing the whole frame? Am I seeing the whole story? And it's so disorienting the way that they're making it. I'm casting no final judgments on either. And this is the sort of challenge and the joy of talking about shows on a week to week basis, especially not knowing where they're going. We could wrap it up there. Kaya, thank you so much for producing us as always. Um, your steady hand. I also want to just personally thank all of our listeners who are watching neither of these shows. I feel like there's some of them. My judging by my feedback over the last few weeks, Amanda, our only <laughs> Amanda Dobbins is listening right now. We, we we love it. We appreciate it. 
I feel like the only other people who really listen are Broadway fans, <laughs> which has been awesome. So maybe maybe it's small sample. I size. want to make a documentary about this this mm-hmm. experience that you had. I think I'm documenting. Yeah, it. you should see my IG mentions. They're blowing up. I've, um, I've found my tribe. You know. Yeah, that's nice for me. We'll be back on Thursday. Thanks so much for listening. Everybody have a great week. 